Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for our church. And a few weeks ago, I had a new privilege I've never had before of joining a live internet panel discussion about leadership. There was a website that was having some discussions, and I got to participate in one of them. And my main goal in participating in this discussion was to help take us to the scripture to talk about what the Bible had to say about leadership. So the topic of the discussion was about leadership. I just wanted to open the book and consider it, consider what it says. I figure that if we can learn about leadership anywhere, it should be from the Bible because God has spoken to us and he has led us and he has revealed how his world works and how he works. And this word of God is sufficient for whatever we face. But what is really striking is that this sort of approach to the scripture is astonishingly rare today. Many people, many Christians, believe in the authority of Scripture, but sometimes they just don't know what to do with it. So when I was on this panel discussion, among the the different participants, we often alluded to the Scripture, we brought in biblical principles, so I know that the other panelists cared about the Bible. They really did. But nobody else ever cracked open the book to read it and consider it and engage with what was written on the page. After the show, one of the producers of the show, after she had sort of sent some thank you emails and logistics to everybody, she then sent me a private email where she said this, I was so glad you were on the show. I really appreciated how you brought everything back to scripture first and foremost. And to be honest, it surprises me that this would be noteworthy. The fact that I brought things back to the scripture. And I'm tempted to pump myself up for a job well done. But I want to be honest, I'm as guilty as anybody on this. Because in all honesty, when my basement floods with water, or if I need an idea for a blog post, or if an administrative decision crosses my desk, or if someone asks me for feedback, or if a child asks me why I want him to do something, I very rarely consider chapter and verse to provide direction. Today, we're beginning a a four-week series on what our church stands for. And we're going to walk through our three church principles that describe our church's identity. Those three principles are grace, fellowship, And church, this is brilliant, because it's from our name. We thought it would make it easy to remember. And so we want to remind everybody and introduce newcomers as to what our church is about. This week, to kick off the series, I'm going to begin with what we call the introduction to our principles. I'm going to read it in a few minutes, but it's printed on the back of your outlines. We just have a few paragraphs that talk about the introduction, and uh, as I as I introduce these church principles, we're also going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'd like to turn with me, it's on page 646 of the church Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. And we're going to begin with, with talking about what we believe about the Bible. 
This is what we cover in the introduction to our church principles. And this is important. We're going to begin our series with this because what we say here today, what we're going to consider this morning is completely, centrally, organically, substantively, vitally, crucially, foundational. Get the point? This is absolutely foundational to the rest of the principles that we're going to trace out. And what I would like to do is to simply talk about two things. One is I would like to assert that the Bible is sufficient for all of life. And then we will understand why the Bible is sufficient for all of life. So that's where we're going. Let's pray and then I'll read from 2 Timothy 3. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please take your truth and plant it deeply within us that we might live in full obedience for you and that we might know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what the Bible says about the Bible. Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy is the man he's been training for years as a pastor. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The first thing I want to do this morning is just to explain that the Bible is sufficient for all of life. I'm going to start in this paragraph with the key verse, which is verse 14. You see, this is Paul's last letter written to his protege, his main man, the guy that he's been training in ministry. And this letter is filled with imperatives. As you read through these, this short letter, four chapters of 2 Timothy, there's one command after another. Guard the good deposit. Suffer as a good soldier. Take what you've learned from me and trust it to others. Preach the word. He is imperative after imperative after imperative. All kinds of things that Paul wants Timothy to do. But this paragraph has but one imperative. And it is the main idea of this paragraph. In verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Because Paul understands, he believes, that Timothy's life before God, Timothy's life as a pastor, in fact, Timothy's life as a Christian, is to be lived, it is to be continued under this imperative, to continue in what he's learned and what he has firmly believed. And we see in the next 
few verses that what he's learned is that which is in the Bible. Because Paul goes on to talk about what to do with the scripture and the sacred writings. And what Timothy needs is to continue in these things that he's learned, to continue in the scriptures. He doesn't need psychology in order to help people change. He doesn't need business gurus to help him learn how to grow the church. He doesn't need a large state university to validate his education. What he needs is to continue in the sacred writings. We call this the Bible's sufficiency, that the Bible is sufficient for all of life. The Bible is sufficient for you to continue in what God wants for you. Now, sufficiency is not the only trait we could consider about the Bible. It's not the only thing that's true about the Bible. In fact, historically, Christianity has typically believed four major things about the Bible. They believed in the Bible's sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. These are the four typical things. Sufficiency means that the Bible is enough. You don't need anything else to know God, to please God. Clarity means that the Bible can be understood. You don't need the experts to tell you what to think. You don't need special education. The Bible is clear. Third is authority. And that's that our belief is that the Bible rules us. We don't rule the Bible. We don't decide which parts of the Bible are true and which parts are not. We don't decide which parts of the Bible speak to our lives and which parts do not. The Bible speaks to us. The Bible has authority. And the fourth trait is necessity, which is the belief that we cannot know God without the Bible. We can't. You can't know God in a saving way by looking at a sunset or a beautiful flower or communing with nature. You can learn things about God that way, but you cannot learn saving things. You cannot be saved from your sin by faith in Jesus Christ unless he's revealed to you through the Bible. Now, in a fan, his fantastic book, Kevin DeYoung, uh, his book, is, recent book is Taking God at His Word. He works through these four attributes of Scripture, and he has this really interesting thing to say. Of the four attributes of Scripture, sufficiency may be the one that evangelicals forget first. If authority is the liberal problem, because they would say that we can freely doubt the Scripture, if clarity is the postmodern problem, because who's to say what it means after all, and if necessity is the problem for atheists and agnostics, because they think we can get by just fine without the Bible, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. We can say all the right things about the Bible, we can even read it regularly, but when life gets difficult or even just a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelation, and new experiences to bring us closer to God. For example, we feel rather ho-hum about the New Testament's description of heaven, but we are mesmerized by the accounts of school-age children who claim to have gone there and come back. From magazine articles about my conversation with God to best-selling books where God is depicted as giving special, private communications, he's referring to the book Jesus Calling by Sarah Young, 
we can easily operate as if the Bible were not enough. If we could only have something more than the scriptures, then we would be really close to Jesus and know his love for us. That's what DeYoung has to say. And my point is this, friends. Do you believe the scriptures are sufficient to mold your thinking, your speaking, and your doing? Can the Bible teach you what you must know to succeed? Can the Bible prepare you for challenges you've never faced? Can the Bible strengthen you through your suffering? Can the Bible address the objections of our generation? Can the Bible show you how to work on a team and how to thrive in your career? Can the Bible comfort you when your closest friend commits suicide? Can the Bible empower you to break your lifelong self-destructive patterns? Can the Bible show you how to apply old truth to new and unexpected situations? Can the Bible give satisfying answers to your hardest questions? I want you to know this. Our church believes these things. And it's okay if you're visiting today and you don't believe these things yet. That's okay. You're welcome. And we, we want to talk to you about it. We want to engage you. It's, it's okay if you're here today and you're not sure yet if you can trust that the Bible is even reliable. But we want you to know what we're about so that we can invite you to consider these things with us. So let me show you what we believe. On the back of your outline, this is from one of our foundational documents. We call it our church principles. This is what our church is about. And it's we start this way. Grace Fellowship Church exists to exalt God by making disciples of Christ through His grace. We dedicate ourselves to build up every member until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Those quotes are there because that's a quote from the book of Ephesians. We believe that God has revealed Himself and His grace in the Scriptures. Therefore, we gladly submit every area of life to them. The scriptures completely mold our worldview, our teaching, our theology, our counseling, our activities, our programs, and everything else about us. This is what we believe, and this is foundational to everything else. That following Christ, reaching unity as a church, and becoming mature in Christ all depend on God revealing himself and his grace to us in the scripture. We really believe this. We don't merely want to read the Bible or preach the Bible. We want to submit every area of our lives to the Bible. We believe the scriptures speak to every area of life. That includes money, includes friendship, love, philosophy, bioethics, and baseball. I was at a baseball game last night. It's on my mind. Knowing God requires knowing the Bible. Even if the Bible seems at first glance to be outdated or old-fashioned or uncool, the Bible determines what advice we give to people. The Bible determines which programs we choose to invest in. For example, we've been looking to find a new meeting location for our church. As we grow and we're looking for new opportunities from the Lord. And so the, the elders have been considering what does the Bible say about this? As we face new decisions, 
we're always asking, not just in this topic, but every topic, what do the scriptures say about this? And as we're considering a new meeting location, we want to consider what the Bible has to say about reaching our community. And we see in Acts that the early church met both from house to house and also in the temple. They had small groups of close relationships and they had large groups for teaching, prayer, fellowship, and breaking bread together. And so we've been considering what does the Bible have to say about such things and what does the Bible say about debt, about building unity in the body while we make this decision? What does the Bible say about growth, the growth of God's kingdom? Now, I want to be clear. The Bible does not say, when your congregation needs a meeting location, do this. Because the Bible is not so much a book of instructions as it is a story. The Bible is a story about what God has done from eternity past and in history, how he made everything, how he allowed us to break it, and he's now working to repair it. So when we talk about the Bible being sufficient, we're not talking about the Bible being a magic eight ball where you shake it and think of a question and then you stop and look and the answer you need pops up in the window. By sufficiency, we actually mean a few particular things. And that's what I want to explain for the rest of the sermon. Why is the Bible sufficient for all of life? And what do we mean by the Bible being sufficient for all of life? Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, he means three things by that. How is Timothy to continue in what he's learned and has firmly believed? Well, because of these three things. First, why is the Bible sufficient for all of life? It's because it makes us wise for salvation. We see this in verse 15. Paul says, Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and knowing how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This statement is so simple it's profound, but we need to make sure we understand the terms that he's using. Because the scriptures can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be wise? It means that we have knowledge or understanding of a matter so that we can act on it. What does salvation mean? It means rescue, being rescued out of something, and in particular here, being rescued from our sin. That's the salvation the Bible talks about from our sin and God's wrath against our sin. And he says that it makes you wise for salvation through faith. Faith is a fancy Christian word. It just means reliance or trust. And it's faith in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one whom it's all about. It's not about faith in ourselves. It's not about following our hearts. It's not about looking to the inside and finding fulfillment. It's about looking to Jesus and relying on Jesus. Now, as Paul writes this, that the, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, realize who he's talking to. He's not talking to a non-Christian. He's not saying, non-Christians, the Bible can make you learn how to be rescued from your sin. And he's not talking to a new believer. Here, let me help ground you in your faith. The Bible can make you wise can make you understand how you're rescued from your sin because of what Jesus has done. He's talking to Timothy. He's talking to a pastor. This is the guy 
upon whom Paul's hopes rest as Paul is about to die and he knows this is his last letter and Timothy will carry the mission forward. This is a trained, mature, thinking Christian who is teaching and training others and who is moving along far toward maturity in Christ. And Paul says, Timothy, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The point is this. Before becoming a Christian, you know what our greatest need was? Was salvation, right? Was to be rescued from our sin. And after we become a Christian, you know what our greatest, our greatest need is? It's to be rescued from our sin. We have the same need now that we had then, and we will always have that need. The means of rescue is faith in Christ Jesus. It's not faith in ourselves. And the way we get this faith in Christ Jesus, the thing that directs us to Jesus is the sacred writings. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me explain what this looks like. I have had much struggle lately with going to bed. And there are a number of reasons. One is that I have chronic sleep health issues already, and so I generally feel like it's pointless for me to go to bed too early because I'm just going to lay there. Even if I fall asleep right away, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night. I'm going to lay there. I'm going to be drowsy but not sleepy, and then I'm going to get annoyed and stressed out, wondering do I get up out of bed or do I stay here, hoping I'll fall back asleep again. I'm going to be tired the next day anyway, so I just put it off. I push off going to bed at night. In addition, I've got this other thing working against me, which I just have too many aspirations. I have books to read. I have emails to respond to. I have articles I want to write. I have movies I want to watch, you know. And so I feel trapped between an arrogant self-perception, a hopelessness that things will ever get better, and discontentment with my physical limitations. But the thing that has been the greatest help to me to rescue me out of the mire has been the sacred writings, the scripture. Lately, I've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes because we're getting ready to preach on it this fall. After our four-week series in the church principles, we're going to study Ecclesiastes together. And as I'm studying Ecclesiastes, I'm amazed by the hope that the book gives in dark situations. In fact, one, one thing that's repeated twice in the book is uh, the author asks, who can straighten what God has made crooked? And he throws up his hands in the air and he says, well, God has made the world, God has made things crooked, God has determined, and he's going to do what he wants to do, and we can't do anything about it, and we'll be happier the sooner we realize that. So I'm like, all right, my life is broken, my sleep is broken, there's not a lot I can do about that, I've got these limitations, the world has fallen, but this is my lot from the Lord, and he's made everything beautiful in its time. There is a time, an appointed time for everything. And this has really helped me to find joy in my hopelessness. In addition, I find a lot of help from Psalm 127, verse 2, which says that it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And I can't help but go to the New Testament to think, wow, my performance is not what makes me beloved in God's sight. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that makes me beloved. And because of Jesus, I am beloved and God wants to give me sleep, even if it doesn't feel like it. 
Even if it feels like he's withholding the sleep from me, he wants to give it to me. And so the scripture, in the end, it turns me away from myself and toward Jesus. And when I turn away from myself and toward Jesus, rescue from my sin, from the fall, becomes a real possibility. Because we can be rescued from the penalty of our sin when we first believe. And we continue to be rescued from the power of our sin as we continue believing. And there will be final rescue one day from the presence of sin for those who persevere in believing. So do you feel trapped in some pattern? The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you get mad at your kids? Do you always feel lonely, not as close to others as you would like? Do you feel pressure from your parents or your professors? Do you feel unheard or unappreciated? Are you afraid of what people think of you? Is your life changing drastically and you fear what you don't know that's ahead of you? Maybe you're called by God to honor someone that you just don't respect. Whatever the struggle is, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first way that the scriptures are sufficient. Second, the Bible equips us for every good work. Verse 16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Two things. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable. God breathed out the scripture. God spoke these very words as he moved the human authors to write them down. And when God breathed out the scripture, he did it not merely to fix what was broken and to make us wise for salvation, but he also did it to complete what he had begun and equip his people for service. Because look, it's all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You see, God's word doesn't only fix problems, it also anticipates needs. God forgives sin and he also trains in righteousness through the scripture. And I think this is often where we struggle the most in with believing the Bible's sufficiency. Well, I think it's generally easier for us to understand that the Bible tells us what we need to know to be rescued from our sin. But if I'm going to be empowered for effective service, what I really need is psychology or business manuals or leadership gurus or experts of one type or another. But God wants to equip you for every good work. The end of verse 17. Every good work. That means that everything that God wants you to do to please him, he will equip you for through the scripture. So would you like to be competent in every good work? Would you like to be a competent friend or a competent church member or a competent evangelist or a competent conversationalist or a competent wife or husband, child, parent, a co-worker, employee, boss, a neighbor, a competent citizen, voter, a competent student, club participant, Bible study leader, grandparent, grandchild, sibling, manager, decision maker, academic, handyman. Would you like to be a competent Christian? This Bible was breathed out by God for this very purpose. 
This book can get your attention, it can set you straight, and it can train you right. I'll give you a small example. Yesterday, I took three of my children. We got to meet a few of the Spikes players, the Spikes of the minor league baseball team in town. Uh, we had a friend from our little league team whose mom is uh, an education professor, and she was teaching. Through the summer, she's taught English to the international players on the Spikes team. And her last class was yesterday. She invited us to join them so that for the last class, the baseball players could practice their English with some children. It was really fun. And we gave uh, instructions to our, our kids before they went. So you have to look them in the eye. You have to speak slowly and clearly and make all the sounds for the words or else they won't understand you. And, and as the question came up, why do we have to speak that way? Why are we doing this? Had this fantastic opportunity to equip my children for every good work from the scripture. And yesterday I told them, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we talked about Matthew twenty two thirty nine, where Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these players are our neighbors, even though they're from foreign countries. And we also talked about how Jesus loves people from every nation, including us. And so we can be like Jesus by loving these men from other nations and serving them and helping them to succeed here in what they're doing. And we talked about Luke 4, 25 to 27, how Jesus, how God loves the, the nations. The point is this, that scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. And it equips us for every good work. That's the second way the Bible makes us sufficient. The third way that the Bible is sufficient for all of life is that it teaches us to recognize and resist deception. In this passage in verse 10, Paul says that Timothy has seen the highlights of Paul's ministry, his teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, and steadfastness. In verse 11, he goes on to say, and you've seen my low lights, my persecutions and my sufferings. He doesn't withhold the truth or idealize the expectations, but he's clear about how the Lord rescued him from these low lights. And he draws the principle in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If all will be persecuted, all who desire to live a godly life, the implication for you, Timothy, is that you will be persecuted. And the implication for you, Grace Fellowship Church, is that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And you must know this up front. Many people will think you're strange. As you're a Christian who trusts the scripture, that, what, this was breathed out by God? They're going to think that you're compromising academic rigor if you believe such things. They're going to think that you are strange, that you are wasting your life, that you are old-fashioned, archaic, and bigoted, and insensitive, and unrealistic, and practically insane for believing this. People will think that the Bible can't be trusted, and moreover, they will think that we shouldn't even want to trust it. Because science and archaeology has, have disproven the stories, and the, ideolo the ideology of the Bible is on the wrong side of history, and the ethics are purely barbaric and inhumane. 
And Paul says to expect that. Verse 13. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul says it's only going to get worse. The persecution will only get worse as they deceive and they are deceived. Now, quick note. Not everyone who disagrees with you is an evil person. I just want to be clear about that. Just because you're disagreed with or you're attacked for something doesn't necessarily mean that that person is evil or wrong. Not every different idea is a bad one. And as you become wise for salvation and trained in righteousness, you'll learn how to discern the good from the bad so that you can receive the criticism you need while rejecting the the lies, the deceptions. And you'll even learn to set aside the deception, the foolishness of assuming that you're always right. But the point here is that deception abounds and not everybody realizes it. That's the nature of deception, right? Deception deceives. And so you don't know that you're deceived. So you and I will face deceptions in our world unknown to prior generations. And in our church, our preachers can hit some scenarios and some case studies. But deception mutates faster than YouTube spoofs on Let It Go. Okay? It goes from bad to worse, and it will keep coming, and it will keep mutating. So we can't prepare you for everything, but you know what can prepare you for everything? The Scripture. The Scripture can enable you to recognize and resist deception as it gets worse. For example, just this summer, in the month of May, one thing that hit national news headlines was the story of Jeff and Hillary Whittington who won the Inspiration Award at the 6th Annual Harvey Milk Diversity Breakfast because their five-year-old daughter, Ryland, had convinced them that she was really a boy. And they decided to listen to her, and now they treat him as a boy. They, they cut his hair short. They removed all traces of pink from his life. They changed his wardrobe. They have a YouTube video telling their story that has over 7 million views. What will you do when such a child or such a young person is in your class? What will you do with the deception here? What will you do when such a person wants to attend our church? Or when such a person moves into your neighborhood? Or such a person wants to use the same bathroom that you use in a public place or the same locker room. You see, there's one kind of deception that leads people into this kind of behavior where it leads them into discontentment with their God-given gender. That's one kind of deception, absolutely. But there's also another kind of deception that leads Christians to treat such people as something less than human as something such that they're not made in the image of God. And we need to recognize all deceptions on all fronts here. We need to resist it. The Bible exposes the deception by showing it first in us. Because if you read the articles and watch the videos about little Ryland Whittington, it's not hard to discover that it's all about what will make the child happiest. The parents want to make the child happy. The child wants to be happy. The people who give the inspiration award wants them to be happy. And I live the same way. I think most of you do where you want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want people to do what will make me happiest. There's the deception right there. And the Bible tells us instead of a God who became something he wasn't 
He took on flesh. He became a man and he died in our place to show us that happiness is not about self-fulfillment or self-actualization, but happiness is about self-denial. And when we see that, we can recognize and resist the deception that we see out there in ourselves and in others, out there and in here. So I can't predict what's coming down the pike as far as sexuality or gender issues or how much crazier this is going to get. But I can predict this, that we all need Jesus to rescue us from our sin and our selfishness. And I can predict this, that those who trust in Jesus will be persecuted. These Bible truths will penetrate the rapidly mutating deception. So as we put this together, we see that the Bible is sufficient for all of life. The way the Bible is sufficient for all of life is because it makes us wise for salvation. It shows us the way out of our struggles with sin. The Bible is sufficient for all of life because it makes us competent and equipped for every good work, showing us how to bear the most fruit for the Lord. And the Bible is sufficient for all of life because it teaches us to recognize and resist deception. It exposes the lies all around us, thus empowering us to believe the truth so we can endure persecution. Do you believe the scriptures are sufficient for all of your life? And will you continue in them? If so, if you are to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, at least two implications will kick in. You will feed yourself on this scripture actively. You will make time for it in your schedule. You will get time with the Lord in his word and get that right in your schedule. So you'll feed yourself actively. And then second, you will rely on this scripture passively. When things go wrong, when the unexpected happens, when you need direction and you're not sure what else to do, you'll go here and it'll become a knee-jerk reaction for you. If the scripture can do all these things for us and be sufficient for all of life, why wouldn't we want to go here? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving